Father, we do praise you. We do thank you. We adore you. And we now beseech you that you will give us ears to hear. Help us to understand the things that are before us this morning as we continue to worship by the proclamation of your living give word. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And uh, again, welcome. If you came in a little late, we are blessed to have you with us this morning. Um, I, I want to add to a, a couple of announcements. Um, uh, a new members class, new, new members classes will begin uh, the 26th. I think it's seven consecutive Monday evenings. Um, uh, we have extended um, the content um, of material and the things that we will cover, spreading it out a little bit. Now, we haven't had membership classes for, I, I believe it's been over a year. Um, so you're more than welcome to attend if you're considering membership here at Pacific Hope. It's mandatory that you take the classes. But if you take the classes, it's not mandatory that you become a member, obviously. We can't make you become a member. But nevertheless, beloved, uh, if you've already been through it and you're a member and you're wondering, hmm, what did they add to it? Well, if you want to sit in, um, you can feel free to do that as, as a current member. Um, but we will emphasize... Um, more and more um, what membership is, uh, what is this covenant of membership, um, how serious is it. Um, I know we live in a day where, um, you know, commitment and vows and, you know, membership um, isn't taken very seriously, and that is basically why we we have neglected to hold the classes um, until now. Um, So we're going to spread that out a bit. Um, I'm I do the section on doctrine, what we teach. Um, I'm not adding anything to that. I'll just emphasize uh, with more precise clarity (laughs) exactly what we adhere to doctrinally um, at Pacific Hope Church. So um, that will begin the 26th, seven consecutive Monday evenings, um, and we encourage you to come. After the new year, you can be praying about this, after the new year, um, we're going to um, kick off um, home groups um, that, that are held during the week in the county of San Diego. So you can be praying for that. Um, that will commence after the new year. Um, I think that's about it. Very good. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're joining us as we're in the middle of a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can find your place in Matthew chapter 5 where we will look together this morning at verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Hear now the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the region of Galilee. In what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he continues and he says, verse 31, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And this is the end of our text this morning. May God illumine to us um, the meaning of the text that is before us. Now, beloved, as we approach this topic of divorce, there is no doubt all kinds of sensitivities um, involved. Um, We have, all of us in this room, have some kind of association, most likely, Um, with someone who has been involved in divorce. Perhaps you yourself are divorced. Um, Your parents maybe were divorced. Uh, Maybe you have children that have gone through a divorce. Um, A sister, a brother, uh, a friend. Uh, We are all impacted somehow and in some way by the ravages of divorce. Now, according to national averages, uh, the problem of divorce in American society, I mean, that message is, is loud and clear. 
If we go back, for instance, just 100 years ago to 1910, it was only one in every 10 marriages that ended in divorce. By 1920, it had risen to one in seven. 1940, it was one in six. And by 1960, one in every, four, one in every marriages ended in divorce. By 1970, it had escalated to one in three. Today, for every marriage that lasts a lifetime, yet another does not. In other words, one in every two marriages today will end in divorce. Now, unfortunately, um, I haven't been able to check these stats, but it is said that divorce has infected the church as much as it has the outside world. Now, we all know that it is Jesus Christ who is the great home builder. And it's only a husband and wife who are committed to Christ and thereby committed to one another in a covenantal relationship that are able to see and experience Jesus Christ as the great home builder. In other words, no one is more pro-family than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For it was he, the very word of God, that spoke in the Garden of Eden creating man from the dust and taking from Adam's side in order, to create from wo- in, in order to create a woman who said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here then he, he was laying the cornerstone of what marriage is and what it is to be. To, to a couple who had no human mother or father, And now as we look at this this morning, this is our main point. The main point is that from the very beginning, we see a biblical theology of marriage that testifies to the very character of God. Again, from the beginning, we see a biblical theology of marriage that testifies to the character of God. Now, the true consequences of divorce, therefore, is something the world that cannot possibly understand because they do not understand the character of God as we, the people of God, are able. Now, Jesus is here continuing in the pattern that he's already established for us. Back in verse 17, he said clearly, emphatically, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus does not continue by saying, but I'm here to mitigate the law. I'm here to minimize the law. I'm here to reduce the law. Nor did he say I'm going to reconstruct it in order to fit within the cultural framework of the day. In other words, he's not changing something to make it less restrictive. And remember, he is teaching a people who have been under the care of the Pharisees who had twisted and manipulated the scriptures to their own personal benefit. Instead, Jesus moves now to address not mere external conformity to the law, but rather he gets to the issues of the heart. Now, thus far in our studies, he's associated murder with internal anger and hatred from which murder is birthed. He's associated adultery with inward lustful intent that not only are we forbidden to have sexual relationship with someone who is not our spouse, but that we're not to even lust over him as though that person were to us having the same rights as a husband or wife. He's pointing out the error of their ways. He's pointing out their hypocrisy And he's revealing to all people that in order to stand righteous in the sight of God, you have no ability in and of yourself because he looks at the heart. Therefore, every man and woman is guilty before Almighty God. Now, Jesus has also made it clear, very clear, that he is not laying down a gospel of works. Okay? And let me make that clear, because there are no works that we can do in order to merit salvation. 
There's nothing we can do in order to merit righteousness in and of ourselves. But all the while, he makes clear that his people are not to demonstrate a lesser obedience, a less significant commitment to holiness, but actually greater. How and why? Because of the very power of God himself who indwells the saved sinner, the resident presence and power, the person of the Holy Spirit. And he continues with this theme of adultery now and its connection with divorce. Now, there's a very specific background to this, beloved, in what Jesus is dealing with here this morning. So for our purposes this morning, for me to sit and provide an intricate biblical description of divorce and and marriage and all the complications within, um, as important as the subject matter is and as sensitive as the subject is, to provide a kind of position paper at this point on what constitutes marriage, divorce, and remarriage and all that kind of thing, um, as important as it is, uh, we will not be able to do that this morning. In other words, we're not be able to exhaust the idea of divorce and remarriage. I think that we'll do that next week, okay? Because to do that today would overlook the real issue that our Lord Jesus is addressing here in this context on the hills of Galilee. Okay, fair enough? So to begin with, what we want to see is the controversy of the day for which the Lord Jesus is addressing. And once again, notice Jesus, Jesus recites Old Testament law. In other words, this is a basic principle that you've heard before. He says, it was also said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, you notice, if you've read this this week thus far, uh, this is a shorter intro than the others, right? He said, you've heard that it was said of those of old, but I say, well, here, he says, it was also said. In other words, uh, this is a conjunction that links what Jesus is going to teach about here on divorce to adultery itself, and what we learned last week. In other words, this is simply another treating of the same subject, focusing now on the use and misuse of divorce and the gross perversion of the Mosaic law in this day. Now, divorce in Christ's day, whether you realize it or not, beloved, was as corrupt as it is in our own day. It was rampant in this day. The no-fault divorce mentality ran throughout, I mean freely, the land of Israel. We see something of this at the woman at the well. Remember chapter 4 of John's gospel? Jesus uh, meets this woman at the well at high noon, and uh, Jesus said to her, come here, uh, uh, call your husband and come to me. And she said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying that you have no husband, for you've actually had five husbands, and the one you have now, he's not even your husband. I think that lends something to what was going on um, in the culture at this day. So once again, Jesus is going to demonstrate how the Pharisees' view of the law and obedience to the law is completely deficient. So here then, in this absolute uh, patriarchal society, okay, uh, run by men, through and through, all a man was required to do in this day was to file the right papers in the right order, and divorce was automatic. I mean, that's what it had become in this day. Now, the controversy of the day was over a passage of scripture which they had manipulated for their own benefit, as I said, and that passage of scripture is Deuteronomy 24. And if you'll turn there, we'll take a look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy means second giving of the law, and it's basically two grand sermons uh, by Moses himself to the children of Israel before they enter in uh, to the land of promise. And in chapter 24, here's what we read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
There's a lot of uh, meat packed into that word indecency, which we'll hopefully look at. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again. In other words, if he says, you know what, maybe she's not that bad after all. He may not take her again if she was put out for indecency. And indecency was not adultery, full-fledged adultery, because the the punishment for adultery in that day was was death. But it was probably or most likely a a, a kind of promiscuity that that kind of shaded the line of adultery, but it wasn't full-fledged adultery. So he's not able to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that, the Lord says, is an abomination to the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Excuse me. So this is the final briefing words of Moses to Israel that will eventually become very convoluted, twisted and manipulated by the religious leaders, uh, specifically, most specifically of Jesus' day. After all, you know, as they're getting ready to enter into the land of Israel, you have a very complex uh, people. I mean, we are complex individuals, all men, who can easily find ourselves in very difficult situations. So uh, there's some provision here with regard to divorce, which is very specific. Now, this, what this certificate of divorce was not was a, a document viewed by God as a good thing, but rather was an, an indulgence with regard to the effects of sin, which leads to man's hard-heartedness, you see. In Jesus' time, very important that we know this, there were two th- schools of thought, rabbinical thought, Two schools uh, under two rabbis that were very popular that had both viewed this passage in a different way. There was a rabbi by the name of Shimei, and those who followed him had a very strong view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he taught that there was only one ground in which a person could be divorced, and that was impropriety, um, i.e. indecency in the wife. And again, this is most, most likely some type of promiscuity that, sh- that stopped just short of adultery. And that was the only ground for, a, 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 for divorce in the eyes of Shimei and those who followed him. On the other hand, in the most popular view um, in Jesus' day, came under the teaching and leadership of Rabbi Hillel, who taught that you could do a divorce for any reason whatsoever. And this, again, was the view that was readily followed among the Pharisees of this day. So a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. If she was no longer attractive to him, just fill out the right paperwork in the right order and send her away. Literally, it would be granted if a wife burned his dinner or failed to salt the dinner, fill out the correct paperwork in the correct manner, send her away. Literally. So the divorce policy and the practice thereof in Jesus' time in Israel was dreadfully loose to say the least. And so in that context, Jesus attacks the Pharisees' view of the Mosaic law. Now, the Pharisees... Their take on this is evident in the phraseology of verse 31. Whoever divorces his wife, you've heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what it becomes. If If you want a divorce, just fill out the paperwork. So their misinterpretation would be to explain it like this. If you determine, men, to divorce your wife, be certain that in the process you give her that certificate of divorce. For if you fail to do so, it would be technically then illegal. So don't mess up in the steps, you see. It will cause serious consequences in the nation of Israel. So don't forget, do your paperwork, men. So for them, it had become a matter of procedure. 
And Jesus is directly challenging this haughty misinterpretation of the living, active word of God. Jesus is saying, you've heard incorrectly. This is a form of proof texting, by the way. Side note. This is what we call proof texting. You have in your mind something you desire to do, and you proceed to search for a scripture that seems to be aligned with your ideal. So you rip it out of context, and and you, you interpret it as you deem best in order to meet and fulfill your agenda, right? This happens in cults all the time. This hermeneutical maneuver is common within all cults where they take one obscure reference or phrase, whether it has to do with the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, uh, the Trinity, you know, baptism, and then you go on and you build a, a, a complete structure, a theological, though er- as erroneous as it is, structure to support your particular agenda or view. Three key principles in rightly interpreting scripture. Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. What does this passage mean by what it says? Now, what Moses was saying, don't divorce your wife is what he's saying. Because the consequences of divorce are serious within your culture, first and foremost, or first of all, but foremost, we go. The sanctity of marriage must be guarded within the culture, is what Moses was writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was an abomination to the Lord, the scripture says, affecting the the, the culture, bringing sin upon the land. And then in Matthew 5.32... Jesus goes on to say, but everyone who divorces except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now, makes her commit adultery is a difficult, it's difficult to translate. Um, It could be translated like this, and makes of her as though she has committed adultery. Okay, remember the context of Deuteronomy 24? You only put her away for sexual impropriety, indecency. In this day, they were filling, just filling out the paperwork for, you know, burning dinner. And when you send her away, you make of her as though she has committed adultery. In other words, by casting her away, it insinuates that she herself has committed this treacherous act. So their hypocritical agenda on this day, the Pharisees, was to be certain not to commit the actual act of adultery itself, but in order to satisfy the lust of the heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at, you see. They took this passage, they twisted it, in order to justify their adulterous hearts, they would send their wife away and then marry the one that they were lusting after in the first place. So there you, you, know, you get by the law. In other words, the Pharisees never loved the law of God. They hated the law of God, and they attempted to manipulate the law of God to fulfill the agenda of their sinful intentions. This is what Jesus is digging out. This is what exposes us as helpless. We need the divine work of God on our behalf to save us. God's purpose was never to give an excuse for divorce, but to show its potential for evil. So this, Deuteronomy 24, beloved, was given more for the purpose of preventing it than it was for providing for it. Because marriage is so permanent and precious in the eyes of God. Because God is a covenant-making God, amen? Amen. And he is always faithful to keep his covenant with those that are his. Forever faithful. So he provides a biblical theology of marriage all throughout the scripture with regard to his relationship with his covenant people. So much so, beloved, that God himself, through the prophets, uses marriage and divorce and adultery as metaphors for how his people have gone off into idolatry. For instance, during Jeremiah's ministry, 
there was a drought brought forth by God. Jeremiah goes on to proclaim to these people using this drought in order to challenge their superficial repentance. And his purpose is to confront them with the depth of of their long-standing involvement in idolatry, which, beloved, jeopardizes their security with him. Okay, now, in Jeremiah 3, look at this, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 24. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat waiting, awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore, showers rain have been withheld. Again, Deuteronomy 24 is cited by the prophet. So think about this. This is as though Jeremiah himself were unrolling a Torah scroll. He locates Deuteronomy 24. He sets it before the people, and he explains its implications for their situation of rebellion and idolatry. God says, look, what if a man follows this divorce law because he discovers after he ties the knot some kind of promiscuity in his wife? Is it possible for her to become his wife again? No. Such a violation would pollute the land. So the the Lord, through Jeremiah, uses this as an example, Deuteronomy 24, to the people to expose them as adulterers against him. So without realizing it, Judah creates this impossible situation, placing herself beyond redemption. Okay, don't miss this as far as the law goes, as far as the law goes. They're helpless without him, are they not? We're helpless without him. He's the covenant maker. He establishes the covenant, and beloved, as the people of God, he fulfills the covenant. So here then was the controversy of the day. A passage twisted by the Pharisees, Deuteronomy 24. Jesus now goes on to provide correction to the misinterpretation. Notice, he says, But I say that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, now, we see the controversy, which was a text of Scripture. Jesus is preaching Matthew chapter 5 in the hills of Galilee. Okay, now, follow along. We're going to move forward in the ministry of Jesus to Matthew 19 to look at a passage of Scripture that that helps us in this and understanding this. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus will expand his teaching now on divorce and remarriage, and it's important that we compare the two. Now, Later in the ministry of Jesus, he's actually getting ready at this point, is stepping out of his ministry in Galilee, and he will not return here until his resurrection. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice how Jesus answers. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now it's very interesting. This is very, this is neat, exciting. 
This exchange, again, follows Jesus' departure from the region of Galilee. Remember, Capernaum was his home base up in the region of Galilee. So the curtain at this point in, in, in Matthew 19 is closing on that Galilean ministry. And again, he will not return until after the resurrection. So here now, he's between Judea and east of the Jordan. Now, the scribes, begin to, the scribes and Pharisees begin to press in on him, and with great anticipation, they think now that they have Jesus in their clutches, and they desire to do to him what Herod had done to John the Baptist, which was what? Behead him. For what? For, for criticizing and calling Herod out on what? Unlawful divorce and remarriage to his sister-in-law, okay? So they're thinking, okay, we've got him. So the Pharisees approach him. We're in the region now of Herod. Let's see if he preaches this down here because they want him eliminated. So they press him. Is it lawful? They say, divorce one's wife for any cause. This is also difficult to translate. You're going to translate it one of two ways. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, for any reason whatsoever. It could also be translated, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for just any reason then? So, which is a matter of emphasis, which presses Jesus into the corner. Emphasis. It's like yesterday, I'm driving, my daughter's driving me around. She drives up to the stoplight. She said, I assume I turn left here. And I said, right. (laughs) She starts to get into the right lane. I go, no, left, right? (laughs) Matter of emphasis. Jesus answers, verse 4. Have you not read? Accusing them again of not knowing the scripture. And and, and then he says, the cause for divorce, bottom line, there isn't one. Really is what he's saying. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore, verse 5, a man shall leave his mother and father. They're no longer two. They're now one. Which reveals for us that... Although the the, the parent-child relationships, it it seems to be the most intimate because as a husband and wife are together, they actually create life. As unique and intimate as that relationship is, God says that the marital relationship is even more intimate than that relationship because those two become one even though a child-mother relationship, the child actually comes from inside of the mother. He said it's all about marriage. So Jesus provides commentary here by rooting in creation this one flesh relationship of husband and wife, which is the greatest of all relationships. He's addressing the creative order. God making us, he said, male and female, right? In the context of marriage. Side note. This beloved statement of the Lord Jesus Christ should make it emphatically clear for any Christian who's bought into the homosexual agenda of equality of marital rights. Because if you're thinking that way, you're thinking erroneously, you see. First and foremost, the homosexual condition is not another norm of God's creative order. It is a product of fallen disorder. It's simple. Don't buy into it. Don't hate them. Love them to tell them the truth. But don't be confused by the philosophy of the world. Jesus roots it in the creative order of man, woman, becoming one. Now, this is one of the most important texts in all of Scripture, beloved, regarding marriage. As the Lord Jesus shows us God's plan for marriage in creation, therefore any kind of thinking that is contrary to this plan is always, once again, a result of fallen disorder. Amen? Now notice also, to move along here, in Deuteronomy 24, in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, the words of Jesus, notice, are directed to the man that the primary responsibility of holding the marriage together is on the man, and these men, 
that Jesus is addressing, the teaching of the Pharisees, who were misusing Deuteronomy 24 for their own personal advantage, the Lord's first answer doesn't fit their fancy. So they said to him, verse 7, well, wait a minute, I, I don't accept that. So why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? Who could possibly answer this question but one who intimately knows the mind of God? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's who. So Jesus actually speaks on behalf of God the Father as he spoke through Moses, and he says, because of the hardness of heart, because of the sinfulness of sin, in other words. Jesus is saying to this group, specifically the Pharisees, if you truly love God as you claim, you wouldn't even be asking the question, and if you really cared about his institution of marriage, you wouldn't be searching for the path of least resistance because you've absolutely perverted the word of God. So the issue is, is their heart. And rather than serving the Lord who they claim to love, they were serving their lust. There again, he's getting to the heart of the matter. Whenever God's word conflicts with your desire, you make it say what you want, Pharisees. So to answer your question, he granted a concession. Moses granted a concession because of the hardness of the heart of man. Now, by the time of Jesus, the, the covenant of marriage wasn't viewed as a covenant, but as a convenience. So long as marriage is mutually beneficial and fulfilling, we'll remain together. But anytime it ceases to mutually satisfy, we're out. That was the idea then, and that, beloved, is the idea of our culture in our day. No different. Now, as this liberal position of Judaism took hold, the effect of the culture became epidemic. And it's no different in our day. Even with Christians, I've heard this. Two Christians want a divorce, and there's no biblical grounds for it. But one of them will say, I have peace in the matter. I have peace in the matter. Well, I don't know where they're getting the peace for their no-fault divorce, but it can't be from the Lord. It just can't be. Now, again, beloved, I know this is a sensitive issue. We'll get to, to, to what constitutes divorce and all that and remarriage next week, but we have to look at the text in its context, okay? So don't fret. Don't feel beat up. The Lord loves you. You are redeemed. You are God's people. We're looking at the text, the living word of God. Some people say God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Says who? Where do you find that? You think about the marriage relationship, it, it, or the uh, church relationship is like a marriage. And sometimes the body will have disagreements with one another. So they'll go to another church. They never resolve the conflict. And later on they may say, man, it seems like a divorce. Well, that's because it is like a divorce. We have gospel power to resolve these issues. There's no guarantee that we'll be happy. Verse 9, Matthew 19, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. This is simply a repetition in another context of what Jesus said in chapter 5 and verse 32. He makes her commit adultery. He makes of her as though she has committed adultery. And uh, the way that you have conveniently arranged this for yourselves, Pharisees, you're causing her to appear as an adulteress defiling the land of Israel. The bottom line is that Deuteronomy 24, Moses really only gave one reason for divorce, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. In other words, Jesus gives no more approval for divorce than Moses did. Uh, sexual immorality is, uh, comes from the word porneia. Uh, it includes um, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, a, a number of things. Um, that's why, where it can get complicated. Um, we can look at those things next time. Uh, so divorce, we see, is permitted here for sexual infidelity of the innocent party. They're permitted to remarry. Now, very important notice, Jesus does not say that sexual immorality necessitates divorce or that divorce is required here. Uh, not even uh, adultery 
uh, necessarily puts marriage beyond repair when it comes to the grace and the mercy and the power of God. It makes divorce permissible, but again, not mandatory. So the goal, of course, after even this kind of destructive sin is hopefully repentance, restoration, and forgiveness. And usually when this does happen, the thing that will hinder the restoration is unforgiveness, bitterness, and so on. So this shows restoration, which shows something of the grace and mercy of God for which this marriage is able to survive. Now, of course, there are some who are unwilling um, to resolve these issues, and there are some who are unworthy due to the fact that their continual persistence, persistence in being unfaithful and unrepentant, and one shouldn't remain married then. So all that to say, Moses allowed for divorce in this case as God's mere, very mouthpiece. And then Jesus re- reiterates that truth, that is that there's really only one reason. So Jesus, in other words, beloved, is calling his audience to take marriage very seriously because God does. Very seriously. Malachi 2.16, it says, For the Lord God of Israel says that he what? He hates divorce. Now think about what divorce is over and against the character of God. He's a covenant maker, amen? Never failing to uphold his pledge. He will never divorce you. He will never let you go. He will never break covenant with you because the one who established the covenant is the very one who fulfilled the covenant. Granted to you the gift of grace. So we see again a biblical theology of marriage that testifies to God's ever faithful character while scripture in response testifies to what marriage is. It's ordained by God. Testifies to who he is, that he's forever faithful, that he's committed, that he's loving, that he's long-suffering. And then he defines what his expectations are for his covenant people within that bond, that relationship to one another. So divorce, which God hates, becomes an assault on his character, whose fidelity, whose love, whose commitment and fortitude is always intact, and it is always true. That's how we must think of marriage. So if we accept then, beloved, the cultural norm, casually reining, you know, reasoning our way into justifying divorce, we, the very bride of Christ, end up violating our witness to the very character of this covenant God who saves us. There's a story of a, uh, true story, a very seasoned pastor He'd been married for a number of years, and his wife was speaking on the subject of marriage. And after the meeting was over, one of the uh, ladies married uh, uh, to a young pastor, they had been married a couple years, um, approaches this seasoned godly woman and asked her the question, have you ever thought about divorcing your husband? And granted, you know, this question was coming from an anguished soul, wrestling with her own marital relationship. And this godly wife said back to this young woman, I must say that by the grace of God alone, I have never in my life thought of divorcing my husband. But murder I have thought about. (laughs) Now, she wasn't joking. (laughs) And it it actually served to, to, to relieve the heart of this young woman married to a young pastor. And all that to say, beloved, we, beloved, we must encourage one another that obstacles are to be expected within the marital relationship. Obstacles are to be expected within this marital relationship, the church of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, expect them. But we know how to overcome these obstacles. Do we not? We're given instruction. Very important that we understand this. Young people, um, if you think that marriage is going to be without obstacles, and if we teach people that, uh, we're setting them up for a fall. I'm going to be marrying a a beautiful couple in a week or so. They're going to face obstacles. Others of you that have been married right here, you're already facing obstacles, right? 
you have a covenant agreement. So let us be, let us be to one another, Lord, to one another in the Lord, an encouragement, reminding them, reminding one another, other with regard to the difficulties of marriage and the difficulties with relationships within the church. Amen. So here we see that marriage is not merely a legal or cultural issue which it had become by the time of Jesus within the minds of men, this, beloved, is a gospel issue. Marriage is a gospel issue. I mean, who, after all, makes up the church? Think about this. We can look around. Look around at each other. Okay, just do that. You can just scan your eyes. Look at each other. Okay, we all come from different backgrounds. God has saved us from the same thing. All right? The consequences the consequence of our sin ultimately which is separation from him forever but there were certain sins of our past that, that had a grip on us right and there are certain sins that characterized who we were before christ came to save us right okay who makes up the church in first corinthians paul writes this he talks about the unrighteous and he said the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven and he says look for those whose lives are characterized by and he says this uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindles. Swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that list of sinful characteristics is by no means, beloved, exhaustive. Amen? Murder, adultery, divorce, homosexuality, those sins are not unpardonable sins. There's one unpardonable sin, and it's to reject the grace and the mercy and the work and the person of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's the only unpardonable sin. Notice what Paul continues to say. He gives that list, and he says, but you, former adulteress, homosexual, drunk, or whatever, you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The marriage covenant of Almighty God, the one who came to you, the one who came to me and pulled us out of this, has washed us and cleansed us and sanctified us and justified us. That's why when we go back to the Old Testament, like Hosea, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. That's the gospel. So because of the gospel that saves us, he enables us to view marriage is something that characterizes who he is and what he's done. Therefore, we ought not to fall prey to the thinking of the world, amen? There's no such thing as no-fault divorce. So then, as the very people of God, as the bride of Christ, as recipients of God's saving grace, which is eternally greater than all of our sins combined, we are made able, beloved, to discuss with one another our current sins in light of that grace, to deal with it, to deal with one another, who are a people accountable to the obedience, the power, the grace, and the enablement of his word via the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be afraid to discuss these things and to be open with one another about these things. That's part of what it is to take full advantage of God's grace. Because we will never, never understand the grace of God until we understand the sin from which we have been delivered and what? Cleansed. The bride of Christ comes out of a people like this. Who've been renewed. Transformed. So we can help one another in faithfulness to his instruction. Restoring relationships, as instructed, it's possible. Renewing merit, marital covenant vows, it's possible because of the grace of God. Amen? And also in the church, relationships that we have. So here we see that the Sermon on the Mount is not some new law book, but rather is Jesus speaking in the present as well as into the future. Remember as I close... We are a people, God's people are a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We know we haven't attained it perfectly, amen, practically speaking. We have it positionally. Therefore, we hunger, we thirst, we desire to be pure in heart. We are grace recipients. And the sin, Paul said, is here. 
he grieves over it. A wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? As long as you have this humanness, we will struggle and fight and battle against sin. So for those of you who may be divorced, those of you who are contemplating divorce, you know what the answer is now. But those of you who've been through divorce don't feel condemned with regard to the matter. Um, and you're wondering, wow, was my you know, mar- uh, divorce legitimate? You know, I was divorced before I became a Christian. You know, all these questions we'll try to address next week. Amen? Fair enough? What Jesus is addressing on the Sermon on the Mount was not also a present reality on that day. It is also, beloved, as an eschatological reality that the work he began, he will complete. And that's why you are in this picture of Revelation. John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared how? As a bride adored for her husband. in pure robes of righteousness. That's our eschatological hope. Glory future, amen? Glory future. So again, from the beginning, there is a biblical theology of marriage that testifies us to the character of God. So may we, beloved, may may God make us holy in this area. As a married couple, you need not entertain the thought of divorce have the power. May he cause us to be witnesses to the world around us, and may he bind up the broken heart of this morning, showing us more of his grace. Amen? He's the covenant maker who never breaks covenant. So may we grow in that grace today. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you as this is a uh, most misconstrued passage of scripture this day as it was in the Lord's day. Um, Help us to understand in the context of where it came from, um, how that uh, your word was manipulated by man. And may we not be guilty of the same. May we, as grace recipients, um, operate and function um, with our spouses um, as we ought, because we can, as well as one another, um, for your glory in seeing how marriage characterizes who you are and what you have done and what you failed to do, and that is you failed to divorce those that are yours. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.